you know, in marketing, one of the things that they tell you is that if you can develop a brand and an image that people recognize without any words and they can associate it with your product or with your company or with your organization, you have been successful. Uh, and so I want to show you just a couple of images of some brands that I think should, uh, should spark the name of a company or organization in your mind. And I just want you to call them out. We'll see how successful these brands, these images, these logos have been. All right, so let's take a look at the first one. What is that? Apple. And it's not just an Apple, but obviously it is a computer uh, company and they've, they've taken over the world. Apparently this is now the most valuable trademark in the world. It used to be Coca-Cola. It is now this symbol right here. All right, let's try another one. Windows, right. I had to do Windows after Apple because I don't want to get in the whole PC argument with some of you. I'll get emails after, so I'm just, I'm just you know, equal opportunity here. One more. Let's look at this one. Yeah, yeah. so it's, this, it's actually the seal of the United States, uh, so it's used in a number of different ways, but, but when you see this, it, it immediately conjures images of the United States government in some form. What's, what about this one? The Olympics, very good. Uh, what about this? Disney. Disney, all right, very good. And what about this one? Taco. Taco. That, I think you said that with the most enthusiasm of them all. Taco Bell, very good, very good. All right, and then uh, we've got another one. Here's another one. See if you know this. What's this? What is it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fish. You might see it on the back of bumper sugars. Ichthus, this is actually... Um, the oldest Christian symbol uh, that we know of. It, it predates the cross by about 150 years. Uh, the disciples of Jesus, uh, the people who followed Jesus in the early church, would not have recognized the cross as the primary symbol of the Christian faith. They would have recognized this fish. And in Greek, the word for fish is ichthus, and the letters of ichthus basically were a code for when the church was being persecuted, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, is, is what that stands for in Greek. And so what, what they would do is the Christians would put that on their door so that other Christians would identify, okay, this is, a Christian lives here. So the ichthus is the earliest uh, symbol of Christianity. But of course, we all recognize this symbol much more predominant today, uh, the symbol of the cross, but it is not the oldest uh, and you see this lots of places, especially coming up as we're approaching the Easter season. You'll see it more and more in many different ways. Um, many of you, how many of you today have on a cross of some kind? Anybody wearing a cross? Yeah, there are some, not very many, but there are a few who are wearing a cross today. Um, people wear it as a piece of jewelry. It may not even indicate their, their faith. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of become a piece of jewelry that people wear and they'll wear a cross may or may not mean that they're a Christian uh, or even understand what it means, but they, they like the fact that it's a, it's a piece of jewelry. But most people around the world will recognize the cross as the symbol of Christianity. It's universally accepted. Parts of the world that there might not even be a Christian witness, uh, people know what the cross signifies and what it symbolizes. I, I want to talk today about this image because Jesus, I think, talks about it early on in his ministry, in a conversation that he's having with a religious leader. Now, there was no way the people listening to him at the time could have known that what he was talking about was a cross, but we have the benefit of time and history and perspective to look back and understand what Jesus meant. 
Um, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, was writing with the advantage of history. He had walked with Jesus. He had lived with Jesus. Uh, He was an old man by the time he wrote the Gospel of John. And so as he was looking back over the events of Jesus' life and the things Jesus taught, there were many things that John understood with the perspective of history. One of those has to do with a conversation that he had with a man named Nicodemus. Now, you can find the story in John chapter 3, so if you want to open your Bibles there, that's where we'll be today, John chapter 3. This conversation with this religious guy named Nicodemus, Nicodemus uh, was a Pharisee. Uh, He would have been not only a religious leader, uh, he would have been an intellectual, uh, a teacher, he would have been somewhat involved in government. There, there, there was all these things were kind of mixed together in, in this culture, in this day and age. But he was a very important person, a part of a very important group of people. And he had heard Jesus. The, the conversations about Jesus were spreading all over uh, Jerusalem, all over Israel. And people were beginning to ask questions. But Jesus had not made himself very popular with the religious establishment, with the Pharisees in particular. And so Nicodemus was very curious about Jesus, but was unsure about approaching Jesus uh, in broad daylight. So Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. That's where we get Nick at night. (laughs) And so Nicodemus came to Jesus at nighttime because he didn't want anybody to know that he was coming to sincerely question Jesus. So they have this conversation, and Jesus says something pretty bizarre to Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus heard that and understood that Jesus was talking about something in the spiritual realm, but also understood that just as it was impossible to be physically born again, what is it that I can do to be spiritually born again. So they're in the midst of this conversation. And in John chapter 3, verse 9, Nicodemus says this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus had basically said, hey, preacher, all your religion isn't good enough to get you into heaven. Hey, seminary professor, college professor, all of your learning isn't good enough to get you into heaven. Hey, good deed doer, all your good deeds aren't good enough. And so Nicodemus is saying, okay, how is this possible? I've lived my whole life, my people have lived their whole life, and we've lived generations understanding, we thought, what it meant to to get into the kingdom of God. How can these things be? And here's what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now, Jesus really isn't being derogatory or discounting Nicodemus's intelligence. Rather, he's saying that the best human reasoning, the best intelligence, the best religious thinkers available are not sufficient. That all this isn't good enough, Nicodemus. And he's saying, you, nobody's smarter than you, Nicodemus. Nobody's more religious than you, Nicodemus. Nobody's more righteous on earth than you are, Nicodemus. And you don't understand these things? then the people who follow you must be in real trouble. Because you're teaching people and they don't, you, you yourself don't even know or understand. Here's what he goes on to say. Jesus says in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In, in other words, Nicodemus, you're being hard-headed. We're telling you things we've heard. We're telling you things we've seen. 
you still choose not to believe what we said. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So, Nicodemus, I'm trying to put this on your level and you're not picking up what I'm putting down. How are you going to understand if I begin to talk to you about heavenly issues? Things that you possibly would, 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 would never understand if you can't even understand these simple things that I'm trying to communicate to you. And here's what he says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, Nick, I've been there. Okay? I've been at the right hand of God. I've been in heaven. I know I'm the only one who knows. None of you guys, despite all your religion, despite all your learning, despite how much you've memorized of the Old Testament, you've never been there. I have, and I'm telling you, listen to me, Nicodemus. And then Jesus says something that, quite honestly, can be so confusing and can be so bizarre that many times when we read the Bible, if you've read John chapter 3, you've kind of skipped over verse 14 and 15 to get to John 3.16. Because we know and love, we, we love John 3.16, right? Everybody, we know that one. Let's get to that. So we sort of fly over 14 and 15 to get to 16. But Jesus says something in 14 and 15 that is so important that I really want us to focus in and zero in on these two verses today because they tell us something about the cross. This image and this symbol that we so often overlook that we has become so commonplace that maybe we've forgotten what it means, we've forgotten what the message of the cross is, and Jesus t- gives us in these two verses, listen to what he says, John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is making reference to something in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have known well. He's referring to a story about Moses that you can find in your Bibles in Numbers chapter 21. So I want us to look at this story because the key to understanding these verses is understanding this story that Jesus is referring to from the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 21, Moses has been called by God to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites out of bondage, out of captivity. They were enslaved. And so Moses goes back to Egypt, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no. And Moses says, you better let my people go, and Pharaoh says no. And then there are plagues, and there's all kinds of things that happen. And finally, uh, Pharaoh says, okay, they can go. So the children of Israel leave. They evacuate Egypt. The Red Sea is parted. They cross the Red Sea. They get on the other side, and they're in the desert. And immediately, the Israelites start complaining that we're hungry, and we're thirsty, and how much farther, and i got to go. I mean, it's just, you know... (laughs) Any road trip you've ever been on, multiply that by about a million people. And this, this is what Moses is dealing with. So they're complaining, 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 complaining the whole way. As they're complaining, God is meeting their needs every time. He's providing manna from heaven. He's raining down bread from heaven that, so that, that, that these people can eat even. I mean, it's miraculous. But after a while, they even become sort of inoculated to the fact that God is providing for them on a daily basis in a miraculous way. And this is what happens in Numbers chapter 21, verse 6. 
And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, did you just, just back up here for just a second? Let's think about what they've just said. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die? They were dying in Egypt. They were enslaved. Isn't it interesting how quickly we forget? Don't, I mean, you can be praying for something. God, if you'll just deliver me, if you'll just save me from this. And then if you, I'll go to church. I'll be a good person. And then something happens and you're delivered. Your boss gets fired. You get transferred. Something good happens. Do you follow through on your end of the bargain? No, you don't even remember you made the bargain. I mean, this is exactly what's good because this is part of human nature. And so, th- so they're complaining about it. And then they say, there is no food except this worthless food. It's like when your kids go to the refrigerator and they open it and they say, there is nothing to eat. And you've just been grocery shopping and the cabinet's full. And the, what, what do they mean by that? They mean they, you didn't buy what they wanted. It doesn't mean there's no food. It means you didn't cater to their exact whims and wants. This is sort of what Moses is dealing with and what God is dealing with with the Israelites. Verse 6. Then the Lord. Don't, I love this verse because I wish I could do this. You, come, you've wished this too. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. I don't really want anybody to die, but if I could just, you know, if there could just be some serpents every now and then, you know, to remind the I mean, do you, God, you see this God has sort of reached a point where he's like, look, you're not getting the point here. You're missing what's going on. You are so blind. Maybe I need to send some serpents to get your attention. So the serpents show up, they start biting some people and some people die. Now we need to talk just a minute about serpents. Does anybody remember Bible trivia? Anybody remember the first time in the Bible a serpent appeared? Yeah, yeah. Genesis chapter 3. And it tells us that the serpent was the most wily of all God's creatures. And do you remember what the serpent did? The serpent talked. And who did the serpent talk to? Oh, Adam was there too. He was standing right there being the typical passive male, not saying a word that the serpent was talking. And what did the serpent say? Oh, you guys can eat this fruit. It's okay. Nothing bad will happen. And so the serpent is tempting Adam and Eve to do the very thing that God said don't do. The serpent was associated with the first sin ever committed. And Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. They ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, and sin came into the world. And from that moment forward, any time in the Bible you hear about a serpent, this image of sin, the first sin, all sin, comes into play. So when God sent fiery serpents among the people, what was he doing? He was reminding them about their condition, that this condition, this constant state of dissatisfaction, of grumbling, this constant state of of self-centeredness finds its root in the original sin. Well, why can't I eat that fruit? God said you could have everything else but that, but that's the thing we want, isn't it? 
God provides manna every day, but that's not good enough, is it? And so what does God send among them? He sends serpents among them. As a reminder, this is part of the human condition. This is what the serpent represents. Uh, Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have... You think? (laughs) We have sinned. Now, this wasn't the first time they'd sinned. They had been grumbling all through Exodus, all through Leviticus, all through Numbers. I mean, they'd been, for 20 chapters of Numbers, they'd been grumbling. I mean, this sin had gone on and on and on and on. And what finally happened? God said, okay, you want me to leave you to your own devices here. Let's see how you do without my protection. Let's see what happens. And so what happened? They cried out to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, I would have waited just a little bit before I prayed. Just to make sure, you know, just rub their faces in a bit. Moses just prayed right away. He prayed for the people. Because why? Because Moses loved them. And look, God loved them. And they knew God loved them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so confident to go to Moses and say, pray for us. They understood that God would forgive. So look what happened next. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery what? Serpent. What does the serpent represent? Sin. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Ooh. So God gives a remedy. He gives a remedy. He says, if you will make this serpent, put it on the pole, lift it up. This is the remedy for the snake bite. This is the remedy for sin. Have everybody look on this, and anybody who's bitten, which is everybody, when they look at it, they will be healed. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a, per, if a serpent bite bitten, bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent, and he would live. Now, I just want you to put yourself in the situation of the Israelites, okay? There are serpents everywhere. They're biting people. Maybe you've been bitten. And Moses comes and says, hey, guys, listen, I prayed for you. This is what God told me to do. I've got this bronze serpent I got on a stick. I'm going to lift it up. And if you're a snake bit, all you have to do is look at it, and you'll be healed. Now, what would you be thinking? Yeah, you are crazy. But... But if you just were bit by a snake and Moses lifted up that bronze serpent, what would you do? You'd look at it. (laughs) Why? Because you were just bitten by a snake and you are going to die. And nobody else has got a better solution for you. And so as crazy as it sounds, you would have tried it just to see if it worked. And sure enough, everybody who looked on it was saved. Now, Come back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So does Jesus compare himself to a serpent? The sinless Son of God is comparing himself to a serpent, which is the representation of sin. What is it that we see When we look on the cross, because we have the advantage of perspective, we have the advantage of time, we know when Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up, we know that Jesus was literally lifted up on a cross where he was crucified. This was a common way the Romans executed their their criminals. And Jesus would have been hoisted up on this cross 
on a hill because the Romans wanted everybody to see when they crucified somebody because they were sending a message out to everybody that Caesar is Lord and you better do what he says. And so Jesus was hoisted on a cross, lifted up on a hill for everybody to see. We know what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus literally happened. Literally happened. So what is it that we're looking at when we look at the cross? What do we see? I think this passage of Scripture, John 3, 14 and 15, and this passage from Numbers chapter 21 tells us exactly what we see. And I believe when God told Moses, Moses put a serpent on a staff and lift it up, God was already, God already had a plan for the redemption and salvation of all mankind. It was no accident that God told Moses to put a serpent on a staff and lift it up. So what is it that we see when we look on the cross? The first thing is this. The cross confronts us with the consequences of our sin. You see, when we look at Jesus, Jesus himself was not the representation of sin. What they had done to Jesus is the reminder of of human sin. I mean, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he was lifted up wounded and beaten and bloody. With a crown of thorns on his head, he had been stripped naked, he had been beaten, he had received the 40 lashes, so his whole body would have been bloody And as people are looking at him, they are looking at the disfigured form of a man who has suffered the consequences of the sins of all the world. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't have to convince you that's true. You already know that's true about yourself. I mean, there are things inside your life you would say, I know I have messed up when I, and you fill in the blank, when you told the lie when you stayed when you should have gone home, when you had some and you should have said no, when you, whatever it is, you know there are stories and situations in your life. It's clear. And the, and the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Why is that so? Because God is holy and righteous. And God is, God is perfect. And therefore, if we are going to be in God's presence, we also have to be perfect. But we're in trouble because we can't do it. But Romans 6, 23 ends with, but the gift, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we look on the cross, we look at the consequences of our sin. It confronts us with, that should have been me. That should have been me. I mean, if if you just pile up everything I've ever done, every sin I've ever committed, every thought I've ever had, that should have been me. And listen to what John said in John chapter uh, First John one eight. If we say we have no sin, what do we do? We deceive ourselves, and we do that all the time, don't we? Yes, we do. We deceive ourselves. We try to excuse it. Well, but you know, everybody else is. I mean, it's not so bad. I mean, you know, we sort of move past that in our culture today, and so it's it's okay. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than so-and-so. And as long as I'm better than so-and-so, it's going to be all right. Well, if you only knew my boss, if you only knew my kids, if you only knew my husband, if you only knew my wife. I mean, we excuse it away and we try to dismiss it until we come face-to-face with the cross. And then right there it is, just like when Moses lifted the serpent up, the people looked at the serpent and they remembered how they grumbled against God. When we see Jesus lifted up on the cross, we look and we come face-to-face with 
our sins and our shortcomings. But look at the end of this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If somebody in the camp who had been bitten by a snake said, Sorry, Moses, I don't believe in your serpent. I refuse to look at it. They wouldn't have been healed. I mean, they wouldn't wouldn't have received the healing that God had provided for them. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The cross confronts us with the consequences of our sin. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That was written, by the way, 700 years before Jesus was even born. When we look at the cross, we see the consequences of our sin. But you know what? It's better than just that. Because the cross also demonstrates the extent of God's love. It demonstrates the extent of God's love. Romans 5, verse 6 and 8 says this, For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then we get to John 3.16. For God so what? Loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, the cross not only confronts us with our sin, but it also demonstrates God's love. And here's what I've come to, here's what I've come to know. We're okay with one of those or the other. And, and many churches like one idea of the cross or the other. They like the idea that the cross reminds us of the consequences of our sin. And so we talk about how bad we are and how sinful we are and God's judgment and God's wrath. And all that's true. But we don't talk much about the fact that the cross is a demonstration of God's love. On the other hand, you have churches and Christians who much prefer to think of the cross as a demonstration of God's love. Oh, God loved me so much. God loved me so much. I don't really want to talk about my sin or the consequences of my sin. I don't want to talk about the idea that the the cross confronts me with my sin. I just want to talk about how much God loves me. And he loves me and he loves you and we're all going to get along just fine. And we don't have to confront the reality of our condition that led to the cross. But here's what's true. You have to have both. You You can't pick one or the other. You can't just say, well, the cross is about God's love for us. It's not really about judgment and wrath. But you also can't just say, well, the cross reminds us that there are consequences for sin and God will be justified. One without the other is not the gospel. It requires both. It requires that first we come face to face with our condition. Because unless I'm aware that I'm a sinner, unless I'm aware that I'm broken, I don't even know that I need God's love. I can take it. I can leave it when it's convenient for me. But when I come face to face with the consequences of my sin, I know how much I need the love of God. 
That I can't, it's not optional for me day to day. I need it each and every day. Because God is just and righteous and holy. And he is loving and full of grace and full of mercy. It is both. It's not one or the other. So the cross demonstrates the extent of God's love. And finally, the best news of all, the cross offers us life. Did you hear what he said at the end of John 3, 15? He, he, let's go back and look at that one, one time if we could. Just as, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have, what's the next two words? Eternal life. That they'll have eternal life. John 10, 10 said, this is the whole reason I came, guys. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. This was my mission. And the only way I could give it to you is if I bore the consequences for your sin as a demonstration of God's love for you. Because this is what you deserved, but I'm going to exchange my life for yours. I'm going to exchange your sin for my holiness. That's a good deal. And that's exactly what Jesus offered to us. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 8. And this is the last verse for the day, I promise. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. This is such an important message because the, the world today doesn't, when they look at the cross, they don't see these three things. Maybe today you've come and you don't see these three things. You didn't see them before today. But what does the cross do? The cross, the cross confronts us with the consequences of our sin. It demonstrates the extent of God's love. And the cross offers us, offers us life. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. Let's read it together. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Those children of Israel who thought Moses was a fool because he thought some bronze serpent on a staff would save them, that bronze serpent was foolishness, even as they were dying. But to the people who were looking on the bronze serpent, that bronze serpent represented the power of God to save them from the consequences of their own sin. And Jesus is saying, this is what the cross is. When the Son of Man is lifted up, everyone who looks on him will receive salvation through the power of God. But for those who refuse to look on it, it's foolishness. So next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And the Sunday after that is Easter Sunday. And the week in between, the church for millennia has called Holy Week. And, and it's, it's a time where Christians reflect on the, the last week of the life of Jesus. And I would challenge you, I'd encourage you, go to the Gospels and read. You can find it at the end of every Gospel. You can just flip through until you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and read the account of the end of Jesus' life, his crucifixion and his resurrection as you get ready to celebrate Easter. In between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday is a Friday that we call what? Have you ever wondered why it's called Good Friday? I mean, the, the Savior that we Christians worship was brutally beaten and executed. And we call it Good Friday. You know why it's Good Friday? Because it's good for you and it's good for me. Because it was on that day that Jesus himself bore our sins, bore my sin on that tree in his body. It's a Good Friday. And here's what I want you to do. Between now and Easter, I just want you to just pause every time you see a cross. Could be when you see somebody wearing it. 
could be on a church as you drive by, could be on television, could be any number of places. But here's what I want you to do. Every time you see a cross, I just want you to pause and I want you to think about what we talked about today. I want you to think about what Jesus said to Nicodemus. I want you to think about the cross as it confronts you for the consequences of your own brokenness. The cross as it demonstrates to you the extent of God's love for you. And as the, cro- the cross as it offers you eternal life. And maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're not a Christian. And I'm just saying, what if, what if this is true? What if your salvation, not just eternal, eternally, in some other time and place, but what if your salvation right here and right now is as simple as Jesus just told Nicodemus it was, that just look at the truth of this cross and what it means, and it can change your life. When you look at the cross, what will you see? Will it just be a piece of jewelry? Will it be a religious image? Will it just remind you of an ancient story that may or may not even be fact? Or will you see the consequences of your sin? Will you see the extent of God's love? But most importantly of all, will you receive God's invitation for eternal life? He's done all the work. He's just inviting you to put your faith in what he's already done for you. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as we pray together. And as we pray, as we approach Easter, the Easter season, as we reflect, I know that for some of you who are here, um, you're still exploring this, the stories of Jesus, the truths of these claims, and, and I, ju- I, just, I just want to say it's worth it for you just to set aside the next couple weeks and just pray this simple prayer. Lord, if what Jesus said to Nicodemus is true, will you show me? Show me. Because I believe God delights in revealing his glory. So will you make that your prayer over the next couple weeks? For those of you who've been exploring these claims and you're at the point of receiving this gift, this offer of eternal life, it's really as simple as it was for the children of Israel. Just look upon the cross. Admit Admit that that was the consequence for your sin. Receive God's love and mercy as demonstrated through Jesus and walk in a new life. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to recite a a prayer. You just, in the stillness of your own heart, accept the offer that God is giving you. Father, as we come to this time of commitment, this time of invitation, this time of offering. Lord, we're overwhelmed at what you have offered us, the sacrifice that you have made in Jesus Christ. Father, we're confronted with the consequences of our own sin and brokenness. And Father, we're overwhelmed with the love that the cross demonstrates, this incredible exchange that you have made. Our sin for Jesus' righteousness. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. And Lord, we pray that as people look upon the cross, 
the truth of what it really means will penetrate their heart and their mind and will reveal your love for them. Father, we come to this time and we give back to you through our offerings. But Lord, for those who are here, who are crossing a line of faith today, Lord, I just pray they'd even have the courage to mark it on a communication card, to submit a prayer request, to say, hey, pray for me. Lord, this is our time that we seek to give back to you in in our finances, but but Lord, more than that, with our hearts, with our lives, with our talent, with our time. Father, take what we give. It's meek, it's humble, it's insufficient. But Father, you are sufficient. So we lay it at your feet. Use it as you will. For we pray it in Christ's name.